everyone and welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights podcast. This episode shares the leadership journey of a scientist who accidentally became a CEO. Her words, not mine. Dr. Helen Rippon shares her story so far, as well as insights into her organisation, a charity which funds cancer research projects into any type of cancer anywhere in the world. I'm Gemma Soul, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So, hello, uh, I'm sitting here with Dr. Helen Rippon, CEO of Worldwide Cancer Research. Uh, welcome along, Helen. Um, so, Helen, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your career, um, which has been very interesting to date, and a little bit about the organisation that you're with currently. But if we start just by um, talking a bit about you, Helen, you previously served as the head of research um, for four years, and you held research management positions at Prostate Cancer UK and Age UK. You're a scientist by background. Yes. Um, and you've had over 17 years' experience in the field of cancer research, including a PhD in molecular biology. Um, chuffed I managed to say that without a stuttering or a, tongue, a bit of a tongue twister. And um, so you studied molecular biology at the University of York, and you're a postdoctoral research fellow at Imperial College London. Today, you're the CEO of Worldwide Cancer Research. So, scientist turned CEO, how did that happen? The thing about scientific careers and I had only ever wanted to be a scientist to be clear from being a very small child I hoovered up you know the Osborne science encyclopedias and all of that um so there was only ever one path in my mind from being a very small child however the reality of working in science is that in the early stages and when I say early sort of under the age of 35, 40, um, it's a really unstable career. So the, the career structure in academia is such that the only person who is permanently employed is a lab head. Everybody working underneath them is on short-term, contracts on soft money. Um, so having done a PhD and then gone into um, being a postdoctoral researcher, which is sort of Um, the transitional phase where you hope to become independent as a scientist. I had four contracts in six years. It was quite stressful. It is certainly true in academia that you publish or you perish. Because it's research, it's very difficult to guarantee you will publish. You know, there's only so much control you have over your own success because you can have the most wonderful hypothesis in the world, but if the data doesn't back it up, then that's you have to let it go and you're not going to publish an amazing paper in nature. So having worked in what was a fascinating field of stem cells and regenerative medicine for six years, um, I'd reached a point in life where I I really desperately needed some stability. I was running out of money. Um, You know, my contract was due to end. And there was really no prospect for me of... um, becoming a lab head in my own right those jobs are rare very rare so you know most most careers would have a sort of a pyramid like structure I suppose but in academia the base is very very broad and it tapers very quickly to a very narrow point so the most people who get PhDs will not ever go on to run their own labs there just aren't enough jobs so so that was the reality of it um and then um 
it's funny how your life can turn, isn't it, quite quickly over a matter of days. Uh, a, a contact of mine sent me an advert for a job at Age UK um, for uh, a position managing their small portfolio of research grants. And she said, you know, I think you'd be good at this. And I chucked in an application. All I had to do was throw in a CV and a cover letter. And a couple of weeks later, I was interviewed and I got the job. And that was it. I had changed careers um, almost overnight and with really very little thought. And I was lucky then to move up, um, up the ladder quite quickly again, just by, you know, looking, going for opportunities that looked interesting I've never been frightened to change jobs I think so it's perhaps that underlies some of it um I first came into contact with worldwide cancer research again one of those happy accidents where um somebody from the charity uh the science communications manager phoned me and this is when I was head of research at prostate prostate cancer UK and she phoned me and um said would you mind sharing your job description? Because our director of research position is, is coming up um, and, and we need to advertise for the first time in 25 years. Uh, and I said, oh, I can, but also I might be interested. So I ended up at Worldwide Cancer Research, um, a charity that I had admired actually since I was a, a scientist. Um, and then after four years of... of running the research programme um, and, and loving that actually because it's, it's a rare thing in this sector to um, have a, a programme of science that spans so much scientifically. Um, so the charity will fund anything that could give us any kind of medical advance uh, in cancer, um, but also to have this huge global footprint of, you know, we funded across 34 countries and nearly 200 million pounds in our in our history so so running that was was fantastically interesting um and then three years ago the the position of ceo came free and the board asked me to step up and i thought yeah why not how hard can it be um of course the answer was really really quite hard (laughs) (laughs) but here i am today so it's been a string of um happy accidents and uh interesting opportunities uh, and not being afraid to say yes I think is how I'd sum it up yeah and really interesting that comment you made about not being afraid to change jobs Mm. um, which I think is really interesting Uh, science is traditionally a male dominated sector were you ever aware of that when you're younger or when you're an early career as a scientist was I conscious of it um not Really, I can't say it was at the forefront of my mind. Um, I did, I, and I never, I never felt that being a woman would prevent me succeeding in science. Although, although uh, I've come to see that there are some sort of structural problems with the, with women progressing in science. You know, for example. Um, your most productive years as a, as a postdoctoral research scientist, you know, this crucial period where you're building up your track record and your publication, um, your, your publication list, um, that period would tend to hit the point in your life where you're probably thinking about having children, so you might end up going off on maternity leave. And, and science has historically not been particularly forgiving of people that take periods of women that take periods of leave. Um, 
there's also a, a, a fair body of evidence now to show that there's you know quite a lot of unconscious bias when it comes to hiring decisions, particularly in those more senior jobs. Mm. Um, but at the time, no, I wasn't particularly aware of it, and 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 perhaps. Some of that is that when I um, was doing my postdoctoral research, I worked for two women. So Professor Dame Julia Polak, um, a truly extraordinary woman who who came up in science and became an incredibly highly cited and and uh, quite famous scientist um, at a time when I, I suspect that was really really difficult for a woman. Uh, and then my immediate lab head was was a lady called Dr Anne Bishop. So I was. I was, you know, under female leaders, as it, as mm. it was. Mm. So Worldwide Cancer Research, fascinating organisation. Um, you're a relatively small charity mm. in terms of people. You know, you're headquartered in Edinburgh. How, what, what size are you in terms of your... Headcount at the moment, I think we're just over 40. 40, um, OK. We're going to grow a little bit bigger than that. But no, you know, we will we'll, we'll not be more than 50 mm-hmm. people. So we are small really small for our income actually if you compare us uh, mm-hmm. to the rest of the sector so yes there's this small group of people um and it's kind of it's one of the attractive things for me about the the charity and always has been this is a relatively small group of people um working towards a huge ambition and having this glo- enormous global reach to scientists around the world um it's uh, unique actually um, and, and, a, and a fascinating um, place to work and a, a fascinating challenge. So we were we were set up 40 years ago. We were established 40 years ago by um, an academic called Dr. Colin Thompson, who um, was a theoretical chemist at the University of St. Andrews. And he was a scientist really ahead of his time. At a time when science was quite siloed, he took his theoretical chemistry knowledge and attempted to apply it to the biological question and problem of cancer. So he was multidisciplinary before that was fashionable, before that was a trend in science as it is now. And he set up the organisation because he believed that there was a place for a funder to support quite maverick research, unconventional things, things that maybe challenge dogma or conventional thinking and allow scientists to really take intellectual risks on things that were truly new. And so we were set up with that as a really the core belief. The worldwide thing nearly falls out of that. If you were looking for the best, most potentially transformational, game-changing ideas, then why on earth would you limit yourself to one country you just need to go wherever those ideas are and that's still our value and our core belief today because there's still so much to learn about cancer there's still so much that we don't know um we simply say to scientists and not necessarily scientists who are already established cancer researchers we say to them pictures the thing that you've always wanted to do but you didn't think you could get funded pitch is your brightest idea I, I had a lot of fun on the website looking at some of the different projects that are, are running currently um, I'm going to list a couple of them because I really enjoyed them so you've got one 
running in Dundee at the moment, which is using worms to improve the use of chemo. Um, another one in New York in the States about how a genetic parasite contributes to cancer development. Mm-hmm. Um, another one which is using a tapeworm killer to treat ovarian cancer. That's running in Singapore. Um, and another study in Argentina, uh, turning sweet on cancer. So that's about developing an entirely new way to fund to fight cancer. Um, do you have any kind of pet favourite projects? I do. I do. Go on. I, Can you share? <laughs> I do. Um, because there are always the projects that stick out in the mind from the scientific committee meeting. So... Um, when we choose what to fund every year, which is always a case of um, picking a stellar 20 or 25 projects from an extraordinary crop of 80 or 90, um, there are always some that kind of stick in the mind because I can remember the discussion that the scientific committee had. And our scientific committee, 24 of you know the leading cancer researchers in Europe and not just leading in terms of they've got sort of gravitas and this massive track record. They are pioneers. We handpick them because they are pioneers and they recognise pioneering research when they see it. Um, so some things do do stick in the mind. Um, the projects that I probably most often talk about um, are the grants that we awarded to um, a scientist called uh, Professor Kebs Hardavala dilk She's at Bart's Cancer Institute in London. And she has made a career looking at blood vessel growth in tumours. So in order for tumours to get beyond about uh, a cubic centimetre in volume, they have to establish a blood supply to have oxygen and nutrients in order to grow. So there's a 20-year, maybe more than that, 25-year um, field of research looking at the, the process by which those blood vessels grow into tumours. And, and it's uh, the scientific term, term for it is, is angiogenesis. Um, so Kebs had built her career looking at angiogenesis. And the conventional thinking in that field had been for a very, very long time, including a lot of Kebs' previous research, that we have to find a way to stop tumours developing these blood vessels because if you can do that, you starve the tumour and it will die. Which works really well in theory and it works really well in mice. And we have drugs that do that. They do not work as well in people as you would think. And so this, this, this is where the exciting bit comes for me. Because Kebs, having um, built her career looking at how do we figure out how blood vessels grow into tumours and how do we stop that, thought, well, hang on a minute. Let's flip this on its head. Let's look at this upside down. Because the reality is that when people are getting these drugs that stop blood vessels growing into tumours, they will also at the same time be getting other forms of cancer treatment like chemotherapy. If you just think about what's happening then is if you are starving a tumour of its blood vessels but you're giving chemotherapy intravenously into the blood you're stopping the chemotherapy getting into the heart of the tumour so she thought well hang on a minute what if instead of stopping the blood vessels growing what if we 
promote them. So more blood vessels grow into the heart of the tumour. Will that actually enhance the effect of other cancer treatments? And she met, we uh, did an interview with her recently, she met a lot of resistance to this idea. You know, this was lunacy because... If you encourage blood vessels to grow into tumours, it's just going to encourage the tumour to grow. This is incredibly mm. dangerous. Um, and she struggled to get the funding for it, but we gave her a grant to look at that. And the results were amazing. <laughs> um, if you give a low dose of a, of a, of a, a drug that um, promotes blood vessels growing to tumours in combination with chemotherapy, at least in in mouse models, we need to try in people, it does markedly enhance chemotherapy in advanced, uh, she did it in, in advanced pancreatic cancer where there are virtually no treatment options. And I just, I think that Kebs's work really, it really encapsulates why we're here because she challenged the dogma, she thought differently You're a scientist, you're a leader. How much of you as CEO of Worldwide Cancer Research is scientist and how much is leader? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. Um, I'm certainly a lot more removed from the science than I used to be. And actually one of the really, really nice things about prepping for this podcast was I thought, ooh, I just need to crib up on some of the science again so I've spent a really happy day looking at publications and some of our grant applications and grant reports and things uh, and a briefing from our science comms manager so I really enjoyed that thank you <laughs> um, I think that as a scientist you are trained in critical thinking which helps you're trained to look for data and you're trained to ask questions or to see the questions that need to be asked and to interpret results. And I think if you're running an organisation, that will always stand you in good stead. Those are um, transferable skills. What's different is that as a scientist... And certainly as, as a as the scientist at the, at the level I was working at, you know, I never got very high. Um, you know, you're very much an individual contributor and there, and you are, um, whilst you're working in a team and, you, you know, there'll always be a bunch of people you're collaborating with, ultimately your project is yours. Um, so you, you're working with an awful lot of autonomy, I suppose, Um and that's then difficult, you know, when you move into a leadership position, which is about, you know, harnessing the skills and the brains of other people and helping them be the best that they can be. That's maybe not a skill that you would certainly learn at the lab bench. Mm -hmm. So what, what resources did you draw on then when you became chief exec to help you deal with part of the those leadership responsibilities which perhaps you were less prepared for I um, it's been probably one of my bigger challenges um, I suspect it is for um, a lot of people stepping up to 
to chief executive because all of a sudden you step out of your domain knowledge um, and you're now leading people who know way more than you do about all sorts of different areas that you've never really had enormous exposure to before. So I think um, for me, my what was really important, particularly the first couple of years, was I had a really fantastic coach who um, was incredibly patient with me and very tolerant of me walking into his office and just chucking at him all the things that were in my head and all the things that were keeping me awake at night. And he would just help me pick through those. Um, and a lot of that did come down to how to lead people, um, how to inspire people, how to be a visible leader, which is, um, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm naturally, you know, on the shy side. So actually being a visible leader has been pushed me out of my comfort zone. So having, um, working with, with, with James Clinch, my, my um, coach for a couple of years, was, was really important. And then the other thing um, that was incredibly helpful was having, establishing a network of peers, you know, more experienced chief execs in other charities that you could have those really honest conversations with. Uh, and then you discover that everybody's fighting the same battles and, <laughs> and, and, and it makes you feel a lot better about yourself. So... So those are probably the two things that, that I would say initially. Um, and then more latterly, establishing a really solid senior management team that is very um, diverse in style and approach. You know, we approach things from very different perspectives. Uh, and I think um, that has, is crucial, actually, in... Um, in leading a team of, of diverse people, having that you know represented on the senior team is is really important as well. Mm. I'd like to ask you about dealing with failure mm. because the nature of what you do um, as an organisation that supports researchers, not every project is going to come off um, with with the answer that you're hoping for. You've talked about that in your your PhD. Um, Articles. So, how do you learn to normalise failure and develop that resilience? So, I think first of all, you have to define what what do you mean by failure. So, I probably steer clear of using that word in in the context of situations where you've made maybe what was a perfectly sensible decision at the time on the basis of the information that you had or should have had. Um, if you've tried something and it had just simply hasn't come off because you've tested it, that's, I don't think that's failure. That's just another piece of data that you learn from. Um, so I suppose I wouldn't think about I, I suppose norm, normalizing that kind of failure if that's what you're calling it, is part of that is not calling it failure it's testing it's understanding what works and what on what doesn't so 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 a phase we're in at the moment is um you know we will be moving into into testing new fundraising propositions and, and new channels and um 
and we'll be looking to be quite speedy and agile when we do that and, and a bunch of that isn't going to work off the work the way we hope but all we're trying to do is find out what is it what is it worth investing in and rolling out and going bigger on um it's just it's a process of pilot and rollout for me failure is when actually in hindsight you shouldn't have made that decision that there was information available to you that should have told you something differently um so for example um there, a, a couple of years ago, we invested in a, in, in a regional fundraising strategy, which in hindsight was a mistake. Um, and I think that there was a, um, I, as an inexperienced chief executive, felt the pressure to pull a rabbit out of a hat. Ah, you know, our income is dropping. I, we must do something. And in my um, anxiety to do something, we went too soon without really understanding the market in which we were working and had we I understood the market more fully we would have never made that decision so that's a failure but again you le- you just have to learn from that and not make the same mistake again so um I think it's about um for me normalizing testing and accepting and being honest about the results um, and just treating it in a very, very factual way. Yes, it's almost ruling out possibilities rather than that being exactly an that. unsuccessful. Exactly that. Yeah. You know, and if you get an answer that is no, that is still an answer. It's not mm. a failure. And, and I think that's the same in science as well. So um, I remember a few years ago, we talked to a scientist who we had funded to investigate gene or a selection of genes that he thought might be really crucial in the development of kidney cancer and the project showed that they really really weren't um however they turned out to be really really important in kidney development and they took his project his his line of research down a a whole new unexpected route so you know on the one hand some people might call that a failure but on the other hand really not because Mm. we we still learn a lot from it yeah I'm, I'm moving into kind of wrap-up questions now, Helen, but mm-hmm. I'm really curious because you're obviously very passionate about the work that you do, but what is the best part of your job? The people. Always <laughs> the people. So we have, um, over the last three years, um, really transformed the charity. We've relocated, we've restructured... We've done a massive recruitment drive. Now we're based in Edinburgh, not in St Andrews, where we where we were before. Um, most importantly, we've we've sort of reconnected with our founding purpose. We understand our why, and we understand how we make a difference. Um, and that's been a um, a real effort, I suppose, for for three years. You know, these things don't happen quickly. Um, but where we are now is we've got a team of people who are so enthused about the organisation and are full of ideas. Um, we certainly don't want for innovation, actually, which is lovely because that's what we stand for in science. So actually it's, it's, be, it's been great to see that culture sort of emerging within the organisation as well. So the best part of the job is working with 
a terrific bunch of people who are very different, bring all sorts of different skills and experience and thoughts. Um, and, and, and then what the, that places you in a position as a leader um, in which you have to just kind of provide direction and focus to all of that energy and all of those ideas. And that is a lovely, lovely place, I think, to be as a chief executive. And you may have a similar answer to this one, but as chief executive, what are you most proud of? It is a similar answer. So it's, it is the change we've been through over the last three years. But the reason that I'm proud of it is not just for the results. So we have, um, having moved from, um, you know, what, what I in- inherited was a charity that had done extremely well, um, but income was sort of on the slide. Uh, we needed to sort of reboot, refresh, so that, you know, we'll be around for another 40 years or as long as we are needed um so being able to get to a position where we are today where we I really think we've built this you know this platform for growth we've put in place all of the foundations that we need um but I think the reason that I'm I'm proud of that and this is not just a personal achievement this is a team achievement is that we've been able to make decisions along that way that we're in the interests of the long term. Um, I, th- I feel like we've, we've always made decisions that were right for the future of the organisation when it, at many points in that process, and anyone who's been through major organisational change will know this, at many points in that process there were many decisions where we could have taken an easy route. The thing that we could implement with the least fuss or the easiest, you know, I mean, relocating is, is, is a key um, sort of standout there. So I'm, I'm proud that we did the right thing by the charity the whole way, when at many points it would have been easier to do something else. Helen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Gemma. You've been listening to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights podcast with host Gemma Soule and guest speaker Dr. Helen Rippon, CEO of Worldwide Cancer Research. There was so much I wanted to ask Helen. I was intrigued by the transition she made from the science lab to the boardroom and I really admire her courage and appetite for risk in a way that she's managed her career and seized opportunities for new experiences even though she claims not to have put too much thought into changing jobs and indeed careers. I also love the way she talks about leadership and how her own leadership style has been influenced by the skills that she honed as a scientist, such as rigour and data interpretation and critical thinking. If you're interested to learn more about Worldwide Cancer Research or Helen, pop along to their website at www.worldwidecancerresearch.com Org. I hope you enjoy listening. If you'd like to hear other episodes, you can find our podcast through our website, www.schoolforceos.com forward slash thought hyphen leadership. It's also available on Spotify or iTunes. Just search for School for CEOs Leadership Insights. Thanks for listening and see you soon. <laughs>